دید Turning together to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. The writer has a way of stringing together events kind of as a momentum of their journeys. For instance, in chapter 15, well, you're seeing it really all the way back to chapter 9 or earlier, but chapter 11 and the Lord, chapter 12 and the Lord, chapter 13 and the Lord spake to Moses. Notice the conjunctions, chapter 14, and the Lord. Chapter 15, then, which is the same Hebrew conjunction, and saying Moses. 16, and they took their journey. 17, and all the congregation. And even chapter 18, the word when is the same. Uh, it's called a copula, and it's it's a... Way he just strings these events together and takes you along the journey, so you feel you feel like you're moving along uh, with Israel. But in chapter 19, it stops. You don't have the and or then, but he's bringing us to Sinai, and we're going to stay there, just like they stayed there for, I think it's about 11 months. So it's now about three months, as it says here, in the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt. So it's only been two or three months since the Exodus, and they've moved along several times, so obviously within a few days or within a short period. But now they're going to rest at Sinai. They're going to camp at Sinai or before the mountain Sinai, and it's about 11 months, so the rest of Exodus will be uh, in one place, so he's not taking us along anymore, but now, like the Israelites, we're encamped in this particular section in the rest of the book of Exodus, which has, what, about was 40 chapters, and so half of the book of Exodus or more is from the plain before Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai itself. But keep in mind that they're preparing to meet with God at Mount Sinai. God is going to come down upon the mountain and proclaim the Ten Commandments. And so the main theme of this chapter is prepare to meet with God. And you'll see, often we read, be ready. Or be ready. For instance, verse 11, be ready against the third day. In three days, God's going to come down. And he uses terminology that speaks of the people being ready. Sanctify yourselves, which is the word consecrate yourselves. 
set boundaries uh, uh, between the people and the bottom of the mountain. You have words that speak of preparation to meet with God. And that's the, the thought today. Be ready to meet with God. And what are some universal principles that we can extract from this chapter to help us to prepare for worship every time we come together? And I believe there are three things that certainly I would point out. I think that there are divisions in this chapter. And I don't normally give the divisions up front, but I would like to do that to just help them to uh, kind of uh, sink down into our thoughts, into our minds. How do we get ready for God's arrival? How do we prepare to meet with God or for God to meet with us? And the three thoughts are to refresh our indebtedness to His saving grace. To refresh our indebtedness to His grace. Secondly, to deepen our reverence of God's great name, to cultivate our reverence for God's majesty, and thirdly, to strengthen our will to obey His holy word. So keep those three thoughts in mind. How do we prepare for worship? Number one, we, we refresh our indebtedness to God's saving grace. Number two, we cultivate a reverence for God's great majesty. And number three, we strengthen our wills to obey His holy word. I would just like to read the first section. We awaken or refresh our indebtedness to God's saving grace. In the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God and the Lord called him called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thou shalt, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So this first section is revealing that the way to prepare to meet with God is to refresh or awaken our memories, our indebtedness to God's saving grace. 
He tells them why they're here. He's delivered them from Egypt. He's their Savior. He has redeemed them from the slave market of sin pictured by their slavery in Egypt. And it's really like what he says in the preface of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, thou shalt have no other gods before me and so on. He's not teaching them that you need to obey the commandments in order to be saved. He's already pictured salvation by the Exodus. Because you've been saved, I want you to obey me. You owe me your souls. I have delivered you from slavery. I have delivered you from sin. Therefore, obey me. And he calls it a covenant here. He says, if you obey my voice indeed, and he, then he says, and keep my covenant. In other words, salvation pictured by Israel's relationship with God is a covenant relationship. And when you make a covenant with someone, you say, you know, for instance, a marriage covenant uh, in a ceremony. I will be faithful till death. Though in sickness and in health, we, we, have, a, we have covenant vows. And God is saying, here are my vows. And He's going to read them to them. Here are the vows I want you to keep to me as your Redeemer, as your Savior. Do not have any other gods. Uh, Don't make any images of me to bow down and worship. Be careful to, to not take my name in vain. Don't profane my name and so on. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Right down the line. These are, my, these are the covenant vows I want you to keep. Not in order to become saved, but because of salvation. In other words, God knows that we've already broken His law. We're already fallen creatures. With Adam, it was obey and you'll earn eternal life. But he disobeyed and all of us in Adam disobeyed. We can earn eternal life. Eternal life is a gift from God. But once He gives us the gift of eternal life, then He gives us the will to obey Him. And obedience is, to a Christian, a proof of a new heart. It's, a, it's, a, it's our way of showing God that we love Him. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. So this first chapter is saying, the first section, verses 1-8, to here's how I want you to prepare to meet with Me. I remind, remember that my saving grace. You have seen what I did, not what you did. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians. That I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He uses that illustration of an eagle with its eaglets, whatever you call them. And, and he said, I dealt with e- Egypt as a picture of sin. I'm the one that dealt with your sin. And that's what Jesus did at Calvary. He dealt with our sin. You apply this to you. This is not just ancient language for us to respect. This is is universal truth to apply to ourselves. You have seen what I did to your sin at Calvary and how I have borne you on eagle's wings and deliver you from your sin, deliver you from the world, and I brought you to Myself. Notice that He's saying, I didn't just deliver you from Egypt. I have brought you to Myself. Salvation is not just 
deliverance from sin, but it's deliverance to God. It's not just negative, it's positive. God saves us from our sin to draw us to Himself in fellowship, in a relationship. And notice he uses the house of Jacob and the children of Israel, both of those terms. In other words, he's saying, uh, he's using covenant language. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's saying, you're in a special relationship with me. And he says, if you will obey my voice indeed, now that I have saved you, and keep my covenant, that is my covenant vows that I'm going to give you, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you know, Peter uses the exact language to, to Gentiles in the New Testament. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read to you. and Keep your eye on verse 5 as I read this. And tell me if it's close. This is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Peter is quoting that text. He's, of course, he's, he's, he's quoting it to Christians. So you see how you, you, you apply the language in the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's one Bible. And he's saying, you're a peculiar treasure to me. Now, Israel wanted to be all, like all the nations. They didn't, this wasn't on their heart. Th- that wasn't something that they prized. Only Christians, true Christians. And you understand that not everybody that left Egypt uh, were converted to, to the Lord. They, many left their hearts still there. They were idolaters like the Egyptians. Not everybody in Israel was saved. Like in churches. Not everybody in churches that are, are converted. Not, every, not, not 100% of church membership is converted. You've probably heard evangelists say they wonder if, if 25% are, are, of membership are lost people. That's a scary thing. But Jesus talks about people who insist that they're Christians at Judgment Day. And He says, I I don't know who you are. I never knew you. But He's saying that obviously He's talking about people that are truly in Christ. But He says, you're a peculiar treasure. The word peculiar treasure means private property. It's talking about valuables. You know, people put valuables in a certain place in a hidden place, and they're, and they're valuable to them. It might not be something that necessarily is valuable in money, but it's valuable in, in, in memory, for instance. This ring of my grandfather's. I don't, I don't know if, if, it's, if it's truly a ruby or not, but it was my grandfather. I remember him wearing it when he taught me to drive, when he used to drive in his old station wagon. It's probably not worth much at all, but it's worth a lot to me because it, it, it reminds me of Jigger. His name was my grandfather, Philip Bennett, who I was named after. But the Lord is saying, you're a peculiar treasure to me. Now, interestingly, notice what he says, above all people, for all the earth is mine. What a statement. 
this God, our God, can say, all the earth is mine. In other words, he's saying too, I could have chosen any one of many nations. How many nations are there today? But the point is, the Lord is saying, I chose you among all the nations of the world. You're special. But again, this is a challenge to worldlings. Israel didn't want to be distinct. They wanted to be like the other nations. Remember, we read that often in the Scriptures. But God is saying, no, I have separated you from all the nations of the world. Just like it says in the New Testament, you're not of the world. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to be as close to the world as possible? In dress, in, in activity, in, you know, we, we, we sometimes shrink from being distinct. And yet the Lord says, be separated from the world. You're not of the world. I mean, are we comfortable watching the world's programs where people swear, where there's profanity, where God's name is taken in vain, where there's all kinds of immodesty and all kinds of crude jokes and, and slander and gossip? Is that, is that our diet? Believers should be distinct from the world. And he says, you're a kingdom. Remember, the Bible teaches that that the church is a kingdom. Christ is the king. You're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, just like Peter said. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. This is a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, not just a, a national kingdom. You're mine. I'm the king. And you're priests. Priests were those that could uh, fellowship with God. They represented God to men. And men to God. And you and I, are, if we're believers in Christ, we're priests. And we pray that God would, would work in people's hearts. We represent God to men as we preach the Gospel and share the truth. And we represent men to God. Many don't pray for themselves. Think of the lost souls in our families. Are they praying for their salvation? Shouldn't we be praying for their salvation? Lord, they're ignorant. They don't care. They're disbelieving. But I'm taking their soul to You, Lord. And I'm, I'm saying, Lord, will You have mercy on their ignorance? Will You educate their ignorance? Have mercy on their hard hearts? Will You soften their hearts? We need to be faithful priests representing our loved ones and friends to the Lord. But here is Israel camped before the mountain. I may not get past the first point today, but it, it really that's not important, is it? But it's an august occasion. People wonder which was the mountain. It's in Egypt now. Egypt owns the area. But many are convinced it's called Jubal Meribah. And it's 7,000 feet high. It's got other smaller mountains, but I don't know if you know about the Appalachian Mountains. Apparently Mount Mitchell is the highest of the Appalachian Mountains. Those of you who may be uh, terrain buffs, it's high, a little higher than that. 7,000 feet. And not far from the mountain is a two-mile um, plain sufficient for their encampment of 
thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. They're camped before the mountain, and so as you think about 7,000 feet right in front of you, it's, it's, it's immense, it's, it's intimidating, it's majestic. He, you remember, the Lord met Moses there at, at the burning bush when he took Jethro's flock to the backside of the desert, and the Lord said, you're coming back here with the nation. I guarantee you. It was an august occasion. Perfect setting to prepare for a meeting with God. And again, how should we prepare for God's majesty? How should we prepare to to meet with the Lord? Here, the Lord is going to heighten the occasion by visual and vocal effects. At this mountain, there's going to be thunder There's going to be lightning. There's going to be smoke. The whole mountain is going to be smoking. And you know, liberals will say, well, it's just a, it was just a volcano. There's no volcanic ash there at all. This was all God's doing. It was not a volcano. The Bible says he came down in fire. The whole mountain is not only smoke, but it's on fire. And then there's a trumpet blast. And it's not priests using ram's horns. It's the Lord. I don't know if they were angels, but the Bible speaks about a trumpet that got louder and louder and louder. Can you imagine a trumpet loud enough coming from a mountain that would almost deafen your your ears as you encamped? The Bible says that it was so fearful that Moses quaked. You look at Hebrews chapter 12. Moses had, was at the bottom of the mountain from the context when God spoke the Ten Commandments. He came down and he was there with the people when God said, I am the Lord your God. And the Bible says God spoke with an audible voice. But while he was speaking, there was, there was thunder. Think of how loud that voice must have been. You could hear it above the thunder and above the, the, the noise of the trumpet. Well, I suppose the trumpet was the way in which God was introduced. As you would introduce a dignitary with a trumpet blast, with, with a fanfare. This is what the Lord is doing. He's preparing them with this, these audio and visual effects. And it's not, keep in mind, it's not that God just is producing a circus for people to be impressed by or for people to be uh, entertained. But the Lord is showing how august and how, how reverent, how majestic He is by these effects. And the Bible says, and you read, read that, for instance, in verses 18 and 19, the whole mountain shook. And the wonder why we read when He says, Lo, I come unto Thee, verse 9. I, the Lord, come unto Thee. No wonder why we read, verse 10, consecrate them, sanctify them. Verse 11, be ready. 
Verse 12, set bounds unto the people. Boundaries. Take heed. Watch out that, you're, that, you're, that you properly prepare. Verse 14, Moses sanctified or consecrated them. Verse 15, be ready. Verse 22, consecrate them. they consecrated themselves. Verse 23 again, or sanctify the mount even. Consecrate the mount, not just the people. And that's interesting. This building is set aside to worship God and we need to be very careful that we don't... Like Jesus said, it was just a building, but He said, my Father's... this." temple is my father's house is a house of prayer but you've made it a den of thieves we ought to be very careful how church buildings supposedly set aside to worship god have been places where circuses have taken place where bingo and money making and all kinds of of drinking and 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 smoking and worldliness and dances take place where the Bible says that we're to consecrate our hearts and consecrate the place because God meets here. It's just a, a building. But when God meets here, it's set aside for worship. That's why He gave it to us. We've got to be good stewards of what God has given us and be careful that we don't profane the place God has set aside for worship. This whole chapter is basically saying what Amos said to the people of God. And it's out on our sign. Prepare to meet thy God. And this is a burden that I have on my heart today that our church prepares every time we come together to meet with God. And how you do that is we refresh our indebtedness we awaken our memory of God's saving grace. And that's what he says in verses 1a. It's like the Lord is saying, I'm the one that delivered you from your sin. I own you as, a, as your Savior. I own you as, as, my, as Creator. You're my creature, but so are the lost people. All the earth is mine. But you're more than creatures. You're my children. You're my, my as Jesus says, the Father has given them to me. They're gifts. They're chosen of God. And so the Lord is saying to us, remember when you come to worship, you've been recipients of God's grace. You are what we are by the grace of God. The fact that you and I are alive today is the grace of God. We have the hope of eternal life. Of all people, we should be prepared with gratitude, with with praise, with adoration of God when we come for worship. And so the Lord tells them, for instance, wash your clothes. Now, obviously, it's a picture of inward purities. Now, they didn't have wardrobe, did they? they didn't, did they have more than one change of clothes? Maybe they did, as they exchanged, perhaps, but not... At this point, they may have brought two changes of clothes, but the point is, God's going to meet with you in three days. He wants your clothes to be washed. And you know, people will say, well, can't I just come, you know, if I, if I don't have any? Of course, but the point is, we don't 
come disheveled. We don't come on purpose, slovenly. We come, if, even if we have one pair of, one shirt and one pant, that we come clean. But the point is, we come with our hearts clean. As, as, the, as the prophets would often say, it's not a matter of circumcision of the flesh. Circumcise your heart. And what the Lord intends here is, yes, be proper in your clothing, but not just wash your clothes. Wash your heart. Confess our sins. And we have that time of meditation before we, as we continue to worship, but we ought to come like at the Lord's table. To exam- we come examining ourselves. Lord, is there anything between my soul and You? Am I... Do I... If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers, will not receive my worship. And so we prepare. And even our, our relationships, we see, are not priority. He tells them, come not at your wives. In other words, he's, now that was obviously outwardly ceremonial uncleanness if, if there was uh, physical uh, intimacy. But what's he telling us spiritually? Our relationships are not the priority. God is the priority. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's not our human relationships that take the precedence. And how often is it that we'll offend God and and accommodate someone else? Break one of His commandments to... To not allow a friend or a relative to, to uh, be offended. And yet we'll offend God at will. When the Lord says, no, I am first. I am the God of the universe. I am your Redeemer. Love me with all your heart and soul. And my, I'm first, not man. You know, honor your father and mother comes after the first four commandments. As much as the Lord wants us to honor our father and mother, He's saying, honor me. And then, of course, if we honor God, the first four commandments, we will honor our parents. We will be careful not to, to, to murder, to hurt people, to commit adultery, and so on. But we often forget it's the Lord first. That's the first commandment, to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind. And the second Notice, the second, not the first, the second is love your neighbor as yourself. How often the first us is love your neighbor as yourself. We practically live like that. The Lord is saying to the people of Israel, and He's saying to Moses, they're not consecrated. You've got to consecrate them. And brother and sister, are we consecrated to the Lord? Have we presented our bodies as living sacrifices? Are we consecrated to worship God? We've got to refresh our indebtedness to His saving grace. As an eagle, He's delivered us from the fall that would have crushed us. Think of a little eaglet falling and falling and falling hundreds of feet. And it doesn't have strength of its own to fly unless that mother swoops down and 
catches that eaglet. It's crushed. He speaks of his, him being our Savior. And he's saying, if you will obey my voice indeed, obedience is the mark of a believer. I'm about to give you your covenant vows. Remember, I've saved you by my grace. You're a peculiar treasure to me. You're a hidden valuable. You're private property. Above all people on the earth, I have a right to you because I saved you. Would you have rather gone to hell? He's saying, I have saved you to go to heaven. Don't, don't I deserve first place? And notice what Moses does, verse 7. He lays before the elders, before their faces, all these words. In other words, serious talk. He says to the elders, apparently from all the, all the tribes, look, this is serious business. And we go on to read where the Lord says, if they touch the mountain, it's execution. It's death immediate. If an animal touches it, and these animal lovers say, well, cruel. But God is trying to convey His awesome holiness. We so underestimate the holiness of God. That's why we shirk and we, and we shrink from an eternal hell. We think that's overkill. But I'll tell you, you come to the mount and you come to sense the holiness of God. Hell is not an overkill. The holiness of God justifies an eternal hell. It shows us the sinfulness of sin. We prepare to worship God by refreshing our indebtedness to His saving grace. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Brother and sister, I'm going to close with that thought. Let us never forget as we come to worship who we are, where we've come from, what God has done for our souls. He has delivered us from so great a death, from an eternal hell, from His, His unbearable wrath. Do you feel that? Do you believe that? Our sins deserved separation from God forever and ever and ever. May we never come to public worship without a grateful heart. Here I am by the grace of God that I'm alive, that I'm saved, that I have the hope of everlasting life, that Jesus died for me, a wretched sinner. Oh God, thank You for Your grace. I owe you everything. And I come to worship you with a grateful heart, with a heart full of gratitude, praise, and thanksgiving. That's the first way in which we see God was preparing His people that He would meet with. And so we don't come to the worship service with unprepared hearts, with hearts that are full of complaint 
and bitterness. And we don't come to worship services just having rolled out of bed. How often we find that we have ways in which we, our hearts are, are ill-prepared. Can we come to the worship services and listen to God's Word having read the comics? I'm just giving a, a, just a, a practical illustration. Having stayed up all night Saturday watching R-rated movies and we come to the service of God and expect to feel the presence of God? And could I encourage us to come a little early and sit in the pews and meditate and pray? I know we like to catch up with each other, but could I encourage, as, as Isaiah says, to not think our thoughts or speak our words or find our pleasure? Can we find another time rather than coming to the services and talk about everything under the sun, except we're going to meet with the Lord our God. I'll tell you what, as these people saw the visual and heard the audio effects, and as they were being prepared by the elders and by parents to meet with God, I'll tell you what, all other information paled and they became silent. They weren't talking anymore about all the sporting things and all the things that were... You know what I'm saying? It's not legalism. It's preparation. It's preparing the heart for the seed of God's Word. Sometimes we can have the effect that you can plow the ground. But what would happen if the farmer, after plowing the ground, just went out there and threw rocks all over the place? Sometimes we throw rocks all over the place by just not focusing on the Lord and focusing on ourselves and not coming with gratitude for the grace of God and remembering He's borne us on eagles' wings to save our wretched souls. This is the word of the Lord, brother and sister. Public worship is a privilege. It's, it's commanded by God. This is a picture of them worshiping publicly. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. But he says, I want you to prepare. Just like Jesus drove out the money changers. I want this place to be a place that's consecrated so that people who want to prepare can come in and not be distracted. That's why he drove out. Because they were profaning the place and they were distracting the worshipers coming in and the blind and the lame coming to be healed. So we can be a distraction for people who are coming in to worship God and find the Lord if we're just bantering all kinds of conversation and people aren't thinking about the Lord or they've come to think about the Lord and all they're hearing is something else. You see? the need for us to be spiritually minded, having a true preparation to meet with God. Oh, may the Lord have mercy on us and bless us. We need the Lord's blessing on this church. 
And He will bless a church that is serious about worshiping Him and seeking Him and making that kind of preparation. Coming with grateful hearts. Coming to a God who's been gracious to us. Worthy of our praise. Worthy of our preparation. That He would be honored. Lord willing, we'll look at the the next two thoughts. Coming to deepen our reverence toward His majesty and strengthening our resolve to obey Him. Just as a little preview, it's interesting how the Lord calls Moses up and tells him these instructions to consecrate the people and then He sends them back down again. He's like, I just got here. And the Lord says, get down again. They're not ready. They're going to gawk. They're going to kill themselves. They're going to touch the mount. They're going to have reasons why they can touch the mount. One would be an animal escaped and ran past the fence. And the person would have this, have this excuse. I'm go- I was just going after my goat. I was just going after my animal. And the Lord is saying, don't do it. You'll be thrust through. And what the Lord is saying is, He knows us better than ourselves. Because Moses argues, Lord, they know the instructions. We've already told them. There's a fence up. They know they shouldn't touch them out. And what the Lord is saying, I know the wickedness of man's heart. I know what we're like. I know what you're like, that we know the naughtiness of our hearts, that we're not as consecrated as we need to be. And we often tempt the Lord by our sloppiness and by our presumption. So we need to strengthen our resolve and remind ourselves over and over again how we need to be careful to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Oh, the holiness of God. How we underestimate.